0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. If you haven't already done so, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a supporter of the show, to be able to keep it available and on the air for as long as possible for everyone who listens every week and everyone who is lined up to speak in the future. I want to thank all of you who have supported it in so many ways by sharing the information about it, letting people know the teachers that I hear about who are using some of the information as part of the curriculum when they're teaching about undue influence and manipulation, the therapists who are using it to help with clients they have who have been through situations where they've been manipulated. And the therapist was not able to learn it in school because it's really not taught in school. And all the other people out there who are healing or trying to help others heal. So, thank you to everyone. And so, today on the show, we have two wonderful and talented people who have a great conscience. They're gonna be on the show this week and next week. We have Michael Laskin and Andrea Gionis. And it was really nice to speak with both of them. I want to be able to let you know that what they're going to be talking about is not only the fact that they are actors and Michael also is an acting teacher along with being an actor, but that they have developed what they're calling a code of ethics for people who are teaching acting because it's an environment where things can go awry it all depends upon i think the need to control and the ego need of the person in charge and how people are open to it or vulnerable to it when they think that it's going to help them in their career and in their skill level as an actor if they do everything they're told to do, no matter how uncomfortable or even wrong it is. Andrea is a Los Angeles native. She started playing the piano at age five and did her first play when she was nine, playing Snoopy in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, which is a great show, by the way. In addition to acting and piano, she has studied singing, guitar, and flute. She currently is in school earning a BS in nutritional sciences, while she pursues her career in acting. She also is a freelance writer for online publications, including where she originally wrote about the cult-like atmosphere of acting classes. We're going to post a link in the write-up, in the ad for the show. And we also have Michael Laskin. Michael Laskin has Been a working actor for over 40 years across all platforms, film, theater, and television. Twelve years ago, he started the Michael Laskin Studio, an acting studio in Los Angeles. His book, The Authentic Actor, The Art and Business of Being Yourself, has been praised as a fresh, newly examined, and non-dogmatic, my favorite part, approach. To the work and the life of an actor. Here they are now. I am very, very happy to have Andrea and Michael on the show today. They're here to talk about something that they have learned about and are trying to do something about. And I really value when people come across an issue and want to educate people, but also want to take the next step, which is to try to find a way to do some prevention and to come up with ways to keep people safe, which I I love. And I, you know, I give you a lot of credit for doing it. This is also a subject that affects more people than people realize. And I think it also gets the point across that I try to get across on the show that you don't need to be in a Bible-based group or living on a compound or somewhere to be indoctrinated, to be manipulated. Sometimes people can actually be more successfully manipulated when they're least expecting it. And it's in environments where they think that they can trust the people and that people are supposed to be professionals. And so it just can leave people more vulnerable, which is such a shame. And that people take advantage of their power over others in so many different contexts, including this. I also know, just as a disclaimer, this doesn't happen in every environment, and it's more about what can happen and I guess what to watch out for and what to be careful about not only as the student, but also the teacher. Okay. So I would love for you to introduce yourselves.
1: Andrew, you want to go first? I've been an actor here for over 15 years and I've been in many different acting classes and a common thread that I've noticed among all these acting classes is that there is this cult-like environment that surrounds them. A lot of teachers will prey on actors because actors are very innately sensitive and vulnerable, especially after they've made the big move over here from somewhere else and they need a community and they get swept up in this acting class culture. And so I wrote an article about this because I was in one of those classes and I got out <laughs> relatively unscathed, but I once I published this article, so many people that both that I knew and that I didn't know came forward and started contacting me about their truly traumatic experiences at many of these acting classes. And actually Michael was one of those people that I didn't know who contacted me telling me that he wanted to do something about it. And um, so we've teamed up to create like a code of ethics for acting classes.
0: I love it. I think of how many professions, how many environments need a code of ethics I love that you want to do that here. And if anyone also is in a different field or a different environment, I think it's a great idea to come up with a code of ethics and also to take the risk of publishing something, putting something out there. It's not easy, but you know, you can get a lot of pushback and sometimes people get downright harassment, but then also you have the other beautiful, meaningful moments where people contact you and say, yeah, me too. And that's very, very powerful and feels like it makes it worth it to have taken the risk. So one of those people is Michael. And Michael, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Sure. Uh, My name is Michael Laskin. I've been a professional actor since 1976. And my journey into teaching is fairly recent. I've been doing it for 11 years. I started my own studio. I have heard so many of these stories sort of parenthetically and contextually from other people and i certainly have had students of mine that have have told me stories that have almost had to be deprogrammed in a certain way and um i felt very strongly about it and to the to the point that i had a hesitation to start my own acting studio because i knew what was going on and it's like oh i'm going to go join the rest of the horse thieves you know, and I had to sort of think long and hard about that. And then I decided, no, I'd I'd like to create a class that I would want to go to. And that was sort of my guiding ethos when I started. And i uh, been doing it successfully for quite a while and acting successfully for quite a while, uh, including very recently, I just completed a film. But when I read Andrea's piece, and I can't remember where, I think it's probably Facebook or something like that. Everything's on Facebook, isn't it? It really st- struck me in a way. I mean, I've heard these stories for years about various places, various teachers. And when I read Andrea's story, I just said, you know, I think it's part of it might be the fact that I'm of a certain age and I don't need to prove my bona fides to anybody at this point. And I think it's made a lot of sense to take a stand. So I reached out to Andrea, we started to talk and, um, as you said, we're trying to develop a code of ethics. I, I guess I think I, I want people to know that someone is watching. We're in a we're in an era in our in our culture where there's a lot of um, things are are starting to be rectified when it comes to racial issues, sexual issues, issues of abuse. We're starting to be far more cognizant of that and not sweeping it under the rug. And that that was my impetus to do this. And then when I met Andrea, uh, and we've never met in person. It's only been on this uh, Zoom screen. I I thought I found, I think I found a fellow traveler and felt like it was the right thing to do.
0: Very nice. So I want to say a couple of things. First of all, Bravo and Andrew, I'm so glad you put information out there on Facebook and for people who want to be able to find it, where can they find it?
1: The title of the article is Actors Beware, You May Be in a Cult and it's on the blog wordsbetweencoasts.com. And you can search my name, Andrea Giones, G-E-O-N-E-S, and you'll probably come across it.
0: Okay. And so, you know, going back to what you're saying and, and Michael, also what you were saying about you want people to know that someone is watching. One of the things that I tell people when they ask me sort of the definition of a cult is that nobody's watching. And that, and it's interesting that you would say that there's no outside source. There is no board of ethics that's outside. I know Scientology has its own ethics board, but that's in-house. So, and I know that for a lot of people, they really feel that they're at the mercy. And then when they complain to someone inside, they go nowhere or they get publicly shamed for it or berate it. so it's not safe. So there's this sort of code of silence. And without anybody watching, I think when you have a conscience and when you're not ego-driven, it doesn't matter if someone's watching or not. But for others, it does matter. And instead of having kind of an internal locus of control, it's still very much external. They will only stop if they're stopped. And so there needs to be someone out there to stop them. And so it's wonderful to have that in place so people are safe. And so maybe um, if you can tell me about why it's important in these environments where people are taking acting classes for there to be this measure of safety, what is it about what happens there that might make people more vulnerable? And I also want to ask about people who are drawn to it and that if the people who are drawn to it are going to be more open to making themselves vulnerable. So who would like to pick that up? Maybe Andrea, if you want to
1: start. Acting class work is very intimate. You're often doing scenes where you have to be intensely vulnerable and a lot of teachers will skew it so that they'll say, well you have to do this very sexual scene because you have to get in touch with your sexuality so that you'll be comfortable in doing these scenes you know if you're filming or if you're doing a play and then they'll use that as a tool to get actors to be naked or you know make out with another actor and and do sort of inappropriate behaviors like that where it should be done in a very safe space if it's going to be done at all and it should be done completely consensually and not m- manipulated because oftentimes it is manipulated using those tactics. And then actors, teachers will use this also to get into the actors' personal lives. They'll say like, who in your life is is not supportive of you? Cut them out. Don't ever go to another acting class because they'll tell you the wrong thing. You know, they'll basically undo what we're doing in this class.
0: I mean, just that whole thing of, you know, don't go to another school because they're going to undo and you can only find it here. I mean, that's that's so textbook. Uh, there's something that I talked on the show about a lot, which is this technique of influence called scarcity, and that people are really drawn in to this idea, and so manipulators use it, that you can only get something there and it doesn't exist anywhere else. and it's of the highest level or it's the best teacher or whatever else. And so people then feel like they don't have other choices. But I also I find it so interesting that even with these kinds of things, people can be told to, dismiss their families and others who are not in support of them doing this. I mean, that's very culty,
1: very culty. And there's also a very common another common tactic is this hero worshiping aspect. In this class I was in, we'd have to all arrive 10 minutes early. If we didn't arrive 10 minutes early, we were reprimanded or punished in some way. And then when the teacher came in, they'd blast loud music. We'd all have to give them a standing ovation and clap and applaud and cheer the teacher so the teacher can get to their seat. And, you know, it was putting us down from the moment we started class and raising the teachers up on this pedestal.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. It's reminding me, actually, there's someone who came to me and said, you know, I I wanted to get involved in a yoga studio and it's one that's now all over. They've since changed names because there've been so many lawsuits where she said, I just, you know, I, I think I like the yoga itself, but let me know what you think of this. Is that normal? And I always know at the end of that sentence, it's going to not be normal. Like, if they're going to spend time, you know, trying to track me down and, and start with that kind of uh, dependent clause, is it normal? I brace myself for what they're about to say. She said, Is it normal that when your yoga instructor walks into the room, you need to bow to him 300 times? 300? 300. So I said, um, Let's just even go to once. I mean, I don't know if you even need to do it once. If I walked in a room and people bowed to me, I'd say, oh, no, please do not. Okay, that makes me really uncomfortable. Stop that. I mean, thanks, but no, don't do that again. But 300 times. And if you didn't do it exactly right, like hitting the same angle each time, 45 degree angle, you had to start again. So I said, yeah, I think professionally speaking, you need to run for the hills right away. Uh, but I'm really glad she asked me because she had never been to a yoga studio before. So she didn't know. And I'm sure for a lot of people who haven't been to an acting class before, they just don't have a frame of reference to know. But it's very interesting about the hero worship. So Michael, I guess the same question for you, your ideas about this.
2: I've been thinking about this, knowing we were going to talk today. And one of the things I think was an advantage for me that it just happened that way. And I, I never fell under the influence of anyone. And even in college, I studied theater at Northwestern. And I remember there was a, I don't know, loosely based sort of method type of approach to the acting. And I went, in my head, I'm thinking, that doesn't work for me. I have a different, I have a different organic approach that I just do normally, and that was working for me. So I knew then and there that perhaps I was at least in that way, an outlier. And I started to work right away. So I wasn't um, uh, with some of my friends who had gone to New York and elsewhere and were studying with this person or that person. And I thought, well, I'm I'm doing eight shows a week somewhere. So I'm I'm learning my craft in front of paying customers, basically. I never fell under the influence of somebody. So it was foreign to me that that was really a thing. And part of it is there are certain methodologies. There's the method, there's... Stanford-Meisner and, and other methodologies. And so my feeling, when I, particularly when I started my own venture to teach, was that all, lo- all roads lead to Rome. I don't really care what method you use. It doesn't matter to me as long as it works for you. And at some level, you knew how to do this when you were four years old, so let's get in touch with that and, and not mystify it. So long way of saying, I, I had the advantage of not falling under the influence. And also, I think I'm inherently... Skeptical and inquisitive, anyway, and I'm not the kind of personality who does that. But I, I just—I have a little speech that I give to prospective students because I still get a lot of those. And we talk, and I want—I—I I don't know any other way to have students in my studio other than to schedule a meeting and just talk with them. I rarely, unless unless they're complete beginners, I rarely have them even do any work. I just want to get to know them. But I say, look, what do you, whether you study with me or not, I won't be offended if you decide not to. But look to the teacher because if you have a crazy person you're going to have a class full of people who want to study with a crazy person if you have somebody who wants to be worshiped you're going to have a class full of people who are looking to worship somebody so yeah. if the teacher appears to be stable healthy well adjusted and knows what he or she is doing 75-80% of the places you study are going to have either bad teachers poorly trained teachers teachers who are dogmatic teachers who are controlling and it's just like anything else there's a uh, there's Five or 10% of anything is excellent. And the rest of it's mediocre or bad or in the case of acting studios, harmful. So I I think I'm a bit of an outlier when it comes to that, to the training and to, I mean, I very much believe in, in solid training and all that, but I just don't feel dogmatic about it. I once had an actor come to me. I was uh, coaching his girlfriend, now his wife, who I thought was, she was wonderful talent and we became friends. She said, well, you've, you've got to see My boyfriend, he's he's just unbelievable. So she sent me to him. He was a member of the actor's studio. And it was a, a very, was and is a very, very good actor. And he had a scene that was deeply, deeply intense. Can't remember what it was, but it was like, you know, if somebody ripped a baby out of your arms and killed it in front of you, was that kind of, you know, crazy scene. Not crazy, but I mean, highly intense. So I said, just, I said, let's just, let's just do the words. Just, just do it for me. And he did it and it was brilliant. And I said, you know what? You don't need me why don't you just take that into the room and do that because I can't really improve on that. And he said, Oh no, I have to do this hundreds of times. I have to do it hundreds of times. And I looked at his script and I could, it was black with notes. I could barely even see the text. And I thought, what am I going to tell him that I, that he hasn't already considered and rejected all these notes and things. And so he insisted on continuing to work on it and left much poorer than when he started, and it's that is also a kind of a kind of obsession and influence, traction that people have, and I just I just think that if you have any talent at all, uh, you also have to have the discretion to know when you've planted the flag and when you've said this is how it's going to go. So we are we're very, I shouldn't say we, but so many people I see I don't tend to get students like that. I think you get the students you deserve or you earn. In some way. So I don't generally get people like that. Uh, but I've seen them and I've had people come to me who have had. I had one guy who was a very good actor. I'd done a play with him and I just thought he was so good. And he had gone to a place I will not mention and for about a year. And he said, I don't know anything anymore. I have to, I've just, I have no concept of mine. It was just kind of beaten out of him and he had to be kind of rebuilt in a way. And rebuilding was just putting him in an environment that was friendly, supportive, re- fail and be okay. And and he did get through that, but it's a bad scene in a lot of cases.
0: It's a very bad scene. And I'm thinking of this poor person who needed to be rebuilt. I mean, it sounds like what needs to happen in these situations, which is what I do in my work and, you know, people, I guess, need to do in other fields too, is before you can even do the rebuilding, you have to do the deprogramming. <laughs> and so here he was made to feel that he didn't have talent and couldn't do something without someone instructing him about I guess how to do it and just that lack of confidence is so debilitating and knowing then you I'm sure you got that impression that the teacher he went to whoever it is needed for him to be dependent on him um which is really cruel um and really stripped him of feeling capable which is also cruel and selfish and then to rebuild him, that's, it's a whole long process and a lot of wasted time and effort. And I, what I hope if there's something to be gotten from it, what I hope he got from it is sort of what to watch out for and that he should never be treated that way. I'm actually just thinking now about, um, I forgot it. I think it was Milton could sell yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. <laughs> uh-huh. Got I gotta tell you stories about him. <laughs> okay, let's do that in a moment. Yes, um, <laughs> and I'll tell people why I brought him up. But before that, because I remember for years hearing about him and people going to his classes, and then oh, they became Scientologists. Look at that. So what I think is is really incredible to learn about human nature is how much we think that the person who is mean to us is helping us. It's so baffling to me because I think. For example, let's say the parent who is more strict, eh, who isn't abusive, but more strict is the one who the kids might really remember as having been the one who really taught them how to be in the world and, and guided them well and the ones who they don't want to disappoint and the ones who they listen to and the ones who they can kind of trust. But it doesn't have to be that you, you have to endure being mistreated and that when someone is I'm sure a lot of these teachers can be publicly shaming and cruel and push you to your brink. There is this notion that this sort of no pain, no gain, that the more uncomfortable it is, the more important it is and the better it is and the more that person cares. And it's all false because it doesn't have to be torturous. In fact, then you're just trying to, I think, please that person. And you're not really developing your acting skills From my perspective, even though I've never been an actor, but I'm just assuming it sort of changes the focus. If the focus isn't on you anymore, I think. Okay, so then, so when I when I said Milton Katselas and Andrew said, oh yeah, mm -hmm." so what the reason that I brought that up is that not only can acting classes become kind of cultish, manipulative, abusive, but there's some that have been used as front groups for recruitment into particular groups. And this one was, and it did very well for the group. So what stories do you have for us, Andrea?
1: So it's, uh, people figured it out. I didn't, I never actually named the acting class I was talking about in my article, but people figured it out. It was the Beverly Hills Playhouse. Milton Kutzelis founded the Beverly Hills Playhouse. (laughs) I didn't even know that. Yeah. Right. Okay. (laughs) Famous Scientologist.
0: That's why your face lit up when I said that. I didn't even realize the connection to your article.
1: Yeah, he was the one I was talking about. Uh, Well, not him specifically. It was his um, style that has been passed down to the other teachers. Back when he first started the class, I've heard stories about how he would... So he started this stage manager position for each class. And the stage manager was basically the person who would call a role, who would basically harass the people who didn't show up and be like, where are you? you have a good enough excuse because the only excuses that you could have for missing class were like being deathly ill or if there was a death in the family or if you were um if you had booked an acting job so people would show up to to class sick they'd show up I mean just a mess and it was it was it was bad And, and if and you were praised if you did scenes um you know if you did your work while you were (laughs) really sick. Like I remember I did three scenes in one night when I had mono because I was, I, that wasn't a good enough excuse.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: So back to Milton. So he had created the stage manager position and the original purpose of the stage manager I learned after I wrote this article was that they were there to basically pick out the hot women in class and have them go to Milton's apartment. I don't know specifics about what happened, but that was, you know, one of the really bad things that I heard about him. And yeah, there was a Scientology aspect, which is where the hero worshipping comes from. It's where the prying into people's private lives comes from. It's where the, the, um, what was it called? This the, the striptease exercise, I think, came from, where the teacher would have the students strip. Um, and do what the teacher, you know, the teacher would give orders uh, to the students to, you know, get in touch with your sexuality. That's where a lot of these really, really bad practices originated, and and those originated from Scientology.
0: So, in that environment, and I guess in others that you can both talk about, what would happen if you said no?
1: You were ashamed. You were told that you were scared if you can't handle this, then you can't handle this class. Um, there was a lot of guilt tripping. Some people were kicked out.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Lucky ones.
1: The lucky ones. The lucky
0: ones, right? Exactly, yeah. a blessing in disguise. Yeah. Right, okay.
1: I was just gonna say like nothing outright illegal, just basically as far as you can get, they pushed the line.
0: Right, through intimidation. I mean, and and I think, you know, public shaming is one of the, unfortunately, one of the most successful forms of behavior modification because you don't want to look bad in front of everybody. And then you can't say no, and then you can't protect yourself. And I I think about how there really were very few excuses that would be good enough to miss class. And think about people who are so grandiose, who run some of these large group awareness trainings and others where they will tell people that they that they need to come to class, you know, no matter what. And if you don't, usually the teacher will make it about you that you're just not acting with integrity and you obviously don't care about this and you're weak, etc. But I I think it's just the instructor saying something about themselves that they want to seem important enough for you to sacrifice your health for and to have it be more important than anything else and have them be more important than anything else. I just you know, I think so many of these things are are misdirected and redirected onto the other person, but they really are a reflection of the ego of the person saying it, I think. So Michael, what about what about you on this subject?
2: Well, I I haven't experienced it in the way that Andre has, but one of the things that she and I have talked about and I feel very strongly about and I can point to a concrete example from my class that I had we held last night is levels. There are levels in these places. So you have to spend a lot of money and spend a lot of time at the lower level to get to the next level. And then you hope to get into the master's class, but you've got to, you've got to work very hard to get into the master's class. And it's all money, 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 money. Of course, when I started this, I thought I would like a mixed level class because experienced people learn from newer people, newer people certainly learn from experienced people. And as long as there's a healthy understanding about that, so last night in my class, I have two people in my class who I would say are newer and less experienced, and had a really bad week in class the previous week. I mean, like an epic fail. Like it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> and they knew it. And so one of the people I teach with, I said to her, or she she actually said to me, she said, "I'm going to work with them offline, so that when they come back next week, they'll." It'll, so she did, which was just it was very you know for free. She's just very generous, and and these two had a little win last night. And it was great because, I mean, I have people who are newer, I have people who are series regulars. So it's, it was great to see for them to understand that you can have a victory without this tiered structure of you have to get into the master's class, you know, even though I've been doing this for a million years, I really don't fit the profile of the average person who I think has pursued this. And I'm, I'm a relatively normal, well-adjusted, mentally healthy person. So I just feel that people need to be, you you need to give them a structure, set goals, set a timeline, but you also need to be understanding of what their existence is. I, I wrote a book which came out of the fact that I started to just, when I started to teach, I started to write about my feelings about all this stuff. Cause I thought if I'm going to do this, and it was actually somebody uh, associated with the Beverly Hills Playhouse, who I won't name. It was a good friend of mine who encouraged me to teach. And I thought, if I'm going to do this, I should have something original to say. Otherwise, why do it? Why be an acolyte of some school of thought. So I sat down and just started writing, writing, writing. And miraculously, it got published uh, right away. And it's called The Authentic Actor, The Art and Business of Being Yourself. And it's about the marriage of talent and identity. You can't teach identity, but you can curate it a little bit. And younger artists, you know, th- that's the only differentiator because at the professional level, everyone's talent has been vetted. Everyone's essentially talented enough to be on the SI, let's say. And uh, so that becomes about something else. It becomes about identity. So when you start getting into the identity of the actor, that's where it gets dicey. And I have this exercise I do called, this is what I know for new students. And I say, I want to know what you know. I just want to know what you know about how you like your coffee, about your pet, about traffic, about, you know, your apartment. I want to know how you see the world around you. I don't need to know your deepest, darkest secrets. I don't need to know anything you don't want me, anyone else to know. I just want us to know how you see the world. Because then if I see that and I see what you can do, who you are and what you can do, I see the whole artist. And that was my approach. So that's, if I, if there's a dogma, that's my dog but it's something that I came up with. And When I hear these, I've aside from Beverly Hills Playhouse, I have heard just horror stories about several other places, one of whom is led by a person who came to me for coaching. And it was just, I can't even describe what it was like. It was like a nightmare.
0: So uh, I'm curious about what happened, if you can hold that thought, because I just wanted to say something about juxtaposing what you just said about how you want to get to know the person. They don't have to tell you their deepest, darkest. I mean, I, you know, the issue that I have with so many of these groups and so many of these classes and especially these large group awareness trainings is, you know, you're talking about your biggest fear and what you want to have written on your tombstone. And you haven't like sit down yet. Like you just, you just walked in. And then you have this sense that the people around you are so close to you and you feel so close to them, but it's all been manufactured because, you know, it's not, there's nothing authentic about it. But that because you ask them what they like and whatever, what they like to eat and what's their favorite pasta sauce or whatever they want to talk about, it's so different from probably some of these other places and also kind of cultic groups that will teach you to be an empty vessel that you need to. Empty yourself out. They don't care who you are. They're going to form who you're supposed to be. And I hear that a lot. So I think I, I I want to just underscore how important it is for people to be able to be themselves and that you care about who they are, not who you're going to make them.
2: Just to amplify that a little bit, had somebody reach out to me last week who is interested in class, very green. She hasn't done much, which is fine. That's not a disqualifier as far as I'm concerned. I just kind of said like, tell me about, tell me about your life. What's, you know, who are you and where did you grow up and blah, blah, blah. And she was born in Ethiopia, was adopted at nine years old into the whitest family imaginable in Kansas, 13 kids, amazingly present, interesting young woman. And I said, well, you're in as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that's interesting to me. And let's, you know, the talent, we can't teach that what you have, as far as who you are and your unique story cannot be taught. That's the talent can be taught and can be developed, but that sense of identity is so wonderful. I just, I just thought she was great. That's the only way I know how to do it.
0: Right. Right. That is very interesting. And it says a lot about, you know, what she needed to kind of get used to and probably how many times people thought she wasn't a member of that family and having all the explaining and et cetera, et cetera. Right. And having so many siblings, I think that would be the thing that would get me most. But uh you were going to say about someone coming to you for coaching and and it was a disaster. I mean, you can you don't have to share personal stuff about anyone, but just in general, what was so difficult?
2: This is a person who runs an acting studio who is an actor and has had some success. And we knew some people in common. I don't think we worked. To, I know we didn't work together in the movie, but we, we kind of knew each other. And this person reached out for coaching, uh, which I do a lot of, and this person espouses a very strict doctrinaire methodology. There's a way to do it. It's my way. It's, the, it's, it's a, And all this person wanted for me was line read. How should I read that line? This is like something a, a, a 10-year-old would say. How should you? Well, I don't know. How should you read that line? What do you think? It was like, seriously? This is someone who has made their uh, stock and trade in and espousing this methodology. And I also know from people who've told me that there's the applause when this person walks in and all of that. There's all of that. And then all, all this person wanted was line readings.
0: What did that mean to you about, about that person or about what they had, I guess, been put through?
2: That this person was a fraud, fraudulent, you know? That's just, that's the only thing I can think of. But again, this person demonstrates like a lot of people do a massive ego I've succeeded considerably, but the people I've known who have succeeded beyond beyond generally are driven by massive egos. And I think having a healthy ego is a good part of it emphasis on healthy, but sometimes you need that to push yourself forward in a very difficult competitive career. But you also have to, in my opinion, be a fully really functioning human being and that sometimes those two are not compatible
1: Hmm. the whole tortured artist stereotype is not not the best way to go it's not
2: necessary
1: it's not necessary it's it's better if you are comfortable with who you are and you know yourself because if you don't and you're always searching then you're never going to find stability in the characters you portray
0: well said and so I'm wondering for you Andrea I know that things got clear enough or bad enough for you to want to put the information out there. And so I know that people can reference your article, but I uh, hear if there's some details you want to share with us about what propelled you to want to inform people and warn people that, you know, happened to you personally, or that, that, that was the tipping point for you. I know you mentioned a couple things, but I'd love to hear more about that.
1: So while you're going through these things, you're not seeing them as bad you're not really realizing what's going on. And I left class because I got this one critique from a teacher. I brought in this scene with uh, my scene partner. The character was older than me. It was probably about 10 years older than me at the time. But, um, you know, acting class is a place to go and work on characters. And it doesn't really matter because one day you're going to be able to play that character. And I wanted a challenge. And so I worked on it. We brought it in we felt great about it. Like it was just one of those things where it was, it just felt wonderful while, while we were doing it, we got a standing ovation from the class. It was great. And then the teacher, he looked at me and he went, that was so wrong. That was so wrong. That was so wrong. And he kept repeating that over and over and over again. And at first I thought he was kidding. And then I realized, oh my God, he's serious. And I said, what was wrong about it? And he said, uh, you're just too young. You shouldn't be doing it. That was so wrong. The only thing that was right about it was you looked stunning, but that was so wrong. Yeah. Which is so wrong of him to say. So wrong of him to say. So I literally, I picked my stuff up and I left and I didn't come back. Like, I don't think I even finished the class. I just, I just got up and I left and I've been sitting with that for a few years. And after that happened, I, I was called back by them to do like exit interviews basically where they sat me down for over an hour and lectured me about how I'm never gonna make it in this industry without them and I'll I'll be useless and hopeless without them. And that was just further confirmation that this was not the right place for me. So I never went back and then this happened probably about five years ago, five or six years ago. Recently, it was during the Black Lives Matter protests. I got an email from a former uh, student, uh, co-student Saying um, I'm getting signatures to present to the man who now owns the school to get him to support Black Lives Matter, and we sort of got into contact because I thought he didn't want to talk to me anymore because like once I left that class, you know, you're not allowed to talk to students who have left. So I hadn't spoken to him in years, and that sort of started a dialogue. And then I found out that this teacher not only wouldn't like he refused to do it, but I found out all these stories about these microaggressions. Towards people of color in class, a lot of people felt like he was being I mean, there are uh, stories that I heard where he was outright racist, and I got so upset when I heard that. And so I wrote this article, and then I sat with it again for a few months, and I was like, "Should I publish it? Should I not publish it? But then it just kept getting worse. I heard that this teacher was starting to post on parlor that that oh no, yeah you know what that is. And so and and like really bad stuff on there so I was like I have got nothing to lose. Like this place, I don't even care anymore. So I published it and it got me into contact with so many people I'd lost contact with. And it turned out to be a really wonderful thing and the backlash that I was sort of expecting from it didn't happen because I knew so many people who had experienced retribution from the class if they even if they just left. So even I'd heard about them being stalked, basically, and public humiliation, all of the all of these things. And But I didn't even care about that stuff anymore. I felt like this this subject was bigger than was bigger than my own comfort levels. And it proved to be true after I published it, because it's just I didn't realize I knew like the big classes that that were abusive towards students. But I didn't realize all these other classes that people were suffering through when they reached out to me to tell me about them.
0: Oh, interesting. I mean, I, wow. Okay. So I wonder also if the reason that you weren't harassed for it, or, you know, that there wasn't some sort of outward punishment for it is that maybe it could be, there are a lot of reasons for that, but I'm thinking maybe because what these people do in these settings, they do in private and maybe they're not going to go after you in a public way because that's probably how they get away with what they get away with you know in a classroom or in a black box theater or whatever that people just you know they're not privy to that and so they you may have become too big of a threat to them because you went public
1: maybe and one of that friend that I that I referenced um he had reached out to me after I published it because again I didn't I didn't name the school in it and he said can I uh share this and say explicitly that it's the Beverly Hills playhouse. And I said, I don't know. I don't want to deal with the repercussions of that. And he said, look, I've been bad mouthing them for months now. And if anything, it's made my reputation better.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So then sure. Right. If that's his story, that's the truth. That's right. People have the right to tell their story.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Right um I think and it's not slander it's not libel you're saying this is what happened to me and this is where it happened
1: and I have so many people who have confirmed the things that I've written in it people who who were who had taken the classes I I also had quite a few critics who were like ah this is just a bitter actor who you know she didn't like her acting class she hasn't succeeded as an actor and she just wants to Have her own sort of retribution. And then I had so many people defend me on my behalf and be like, no, I was there. This actually happened.
0: One more thing before you go. Thank you to Andrea and to Michael for detailing their code of ethics, for letting us know how it should be. How ideally it could be if the instructors in these situations were able to be healthy across the board. But realistically, as they know, as we all know, you can't guarantee that and you can't control that. So, a wonderful thing about a code of ethics is it's just as much for the students as it is for the teachers because the students then know how the teachers should be behaving how the instructors should be behaving and what's healthy and what's not and also it will help explain to them why they're left feeling bad about themselves or that they somehow are doing it wrong or that they have to clamor to get in the good grace of the person who is the instructor and that they're also tolerating being mistreated because somehow that's to help them build strength, or build their skill. So when Andrea was talking about this idea, she was saying that in this acting school she was talking about that after the acting students got a critique, and could be a very harsh critique, in front of everyone by the instructor, Nobody was allowed to talk to them after that. No one could console them. No one could encourage them. No one could even say, yeah, that happened to me too, or that's something I'm struggling with. Or no one could even say, hey, what happened to you in that class was really wrong. It's very uncomfortable, and it made me really mad. And I think you should say something about it. You get zero support and that's built into the system. Michael talked about having the students in his class talking to each other, encouraging each other, sharing ideas with each other, building each other up, and that is how it should be. When Andrea talked about that kind of dictatorship where you just have to take it and there's nothing you can do, and there's nothing anyone can do to help you, not only is it making you suffer needlessly and feeling isolated, but it also does something that I deal with a lot with my clients. It can make the people involved in that system feel very guilty. And it's not their fault, I mean, sometimes instructors are so intimidating, so downright scary, that people are not going to want to cross them. But the guilt that people feel when they felt that their hands were tied to be able to jump in and protect or at least provide solace to the people they care about, to the people they saw from their perspective being mistreated publicly and shamed publicly, then The people who are the bystanders who feel like their hands have been tied are also the ones who suffer. So, the whole room can suffer, except for the teacher. So, if you're ever in a situation where you're not able to get support, but if you're also in a situation where you're not able to give support, then that's something that's going to interfere with you being able to feel good about yourself that's a weight that you don't want to carry on your shoulders and you shouldn't have to it is an unhealthy situation anything that makes people go against their conscience and anything that makes people suffer more than they need to and also feel alone in a group of people is unhealthy i truly appreciate This code of ethics, but also the want and the work to put it together. Thank you so much to Andrea and to Michael and all the other people out there who are going to be sharing that code of ethics with others and who have written those kinds of codes of ethics in other fields because they saw what needed to be changed. And it wasn't enough just to go home having it bother them but they got into the therefore. Therefore, what are we going to do about it? And in that effort, I feel hopeful because the therefore is what helps the world become a better and safer place. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination Be sure to give us a follow on our social media Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast and for Twitter find us at, at underscore indoctrination We love hearing from you too So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com And for more updates on the show visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.